So like Nick said, today is the last Sunday of the year. Like we made it, we're here. You guys know what that means, right? Almost as soon as Christmas is over, almost as soon as everybody pulls out of my driveway after like the last shebang of of family gathering, the lists start calling me. The lists. Does anybody else have lists? Lists. Yes. Enunciate. These are the lists, the lists that I started making somewhere around mid-November about everything that needed to get done and everything that I needed to organize and change and all of these things. But you guys know the drill, right? You can't actually change anything in mid-November. Why not? Because the holidays are coming. You're not allowed. It's like a federal law or something. You have to wait. You have to wait for the ball to drop and the calendar to flip over because it's a new year and it's a new you. Right? We are finally going to get our S together. Now we'll, we'll pause here really briefly before we just continue with our content. We're just, just going to get this out of the way, okay? The sermon is titled, Getting Our S Together. Getting Our S Together. There are a number of words that start with the letter S that you could assume that I am abbreviating. The one I want you to use is whichever one makes you most comfortable. (laughs) Don't be distracted wondering which one your neighbor is imagining. (laughs) Don't be distracted by that. You do you. You worry about your own S, not somebody else's S. But tell me the truth. It's the first of the year. It's resolution time, isn't it? A lot of us are thinking like this, aren't we? Aren't we? Raise your hand. It's, so it's not a bad thing. I'm not, this isn't going to be like a resolution shaming sermon, so it's okay. It's safe. Raise your hand if you already know what some of your New Year's resolutions are going to be, if you're a person that, that participates in that kind of tradition. All right. So I, like, I have some goals for the new year, too. I, I have some things that I want to work on. Um, it's wisdom. It's absolutely wisdom to take advantage of that natural transition point in the calendar in life. You know, when when we want to start something or we want to stop something, there is momentum in the rhythms of the calendar. And of course, it's wisdom to know that Thanksgiving Day is not the best day to try to start a diet, right? (laughs) So it's okay. There's nothing wrong with goals, obviously. There is nothing wrong with the tradition of New Year's resolutions. But as followers of Jesus especially, I really think there are some things that we need to talk through. We need to think through about this concept. And the first thing that I wanna talk about is that number one, our motives matter. They matter a lot. We have to talk about why. Why do we want to do or not do something? Why do we want to start or stop? Where does this idea come from that we have to get our S together? Where is that coming from? That is, is 
we have to stop and ask ourselves, each one of us individually, is this nagging feeling that is constant inside of us of needing to be better than we are, is that something that originates from the heart of God? Maybe. Maybe. Or is it something that is coming from some cultural expectation? Something about society around us that calls us to be something different than we are. We see these commercials with the tiny little models and I don't look like that, so you know, I need to get my ass together. Do they come from the enemy of our souls who heaps shame on us for every hurt and every hang-up that we have? The answer again is, is maybe. I can't stand up here and look out at, at a room full of 60 people and say, I know for sure the answer goes one way or the other because it's, it's individual to you. We can't assume that every impulse we have, even if it seems like a positive one, we can't assume that every impulse is God giving us direction to change something. You see, at, at, at any given time, there could be one of three different voices speaking to you. And they all sound so frustratingly similar in your mind. Could be, could be the voice that is your own thoughts, your own internal dialogue, that, that tape that plays in your head, that conversation that's always going with yourself. It could be that voice. Could be the voice of the enemy of our souls. And a lot of times that sounds like shame. It sounds like, like uh, guilt. It sounds like manipulation. Could be the voice of the Holy Spirit. We need to learn how to discern which one is speaking. And content, the content of what is being said is not always the be-all and end-all. It can give us a clue, but, but the content alone is not enough to determine the source of the voice. For a fairly obvious example of this, as far as resolutions go, a really common goal at the first of the year is to lose weight, get fit, go to the gym, it's a super common one. But that impulse to want to lose weight, that means something very, very, very different in the life of someone who's struggling with an eating disorder versus a person who's maybe trying to manage a chronic health condition like heart disease or diabetes. Do you see what I'm saying? Likewise, any impulse that we have, even if it seems like a positive thing, it can be driven by a spiritually healthy and life-giving mechanism. It can be, or it can be motivated by shame, fear, and guilt, which in case you don't know, let me just say again, those are decidedly unhealthy spiritual motives, shame, guilt, and fear. That's not what God sounds like. Now, God absolutely 
It is his heart. He wants to see us grow. He wants to see us learn. He wants us to experience freedom from the things that keep us bound in our lives. He wants us to participate in that process of renewing our mind, of being transformed, becoming more and more like his son Jesus. Of course, that is his heart. But the gospel is so much more than behavior modification or sin management. It is so much more than that. Before we go too much further, we'll look at our scripture passage for this morning. It'll be up on the screen behind you. I'm gonna read a portion of Ephesians chapter two, verses one through 10. Because I think that it, it speaks to this, this mechanism of change and and the interplay between behavior and our hearts. Ephesians chapter two, starting in verse one, Paul says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Let me pause here for just a moment because this is one of those passages that is sometimes used to make a case for the false idea that being good is the goal of Christian maturity. <sighs> However, there's, there's a very interesting thing that we might miss in this passage because of the nuances that exist in the Greek language that we just don't have in our English translations. The word live in this passage, live, alive, all of those kind of you know, variations of that. The word live in the Greek, it literally means to walk about. To walk about. The understanding that is inherent in this word was that it referred to an overarching manner of living. Cosmic versus minute. An overarching manner of life. It is not so much referring to particular behaviors as it is referring to being wholly postured away from God, oriented completely. Right now, I am facing toward you, I am oriented toward you, I am postured toward you. To be dead in sin, to be, to be, not living in that way, to be living according to the the ways of this world is turning completely around and being focused and postured in in the opposite direction. This is the connotation of this. We all started out this way, Paul says. We all started out with a manner of life that was not informed by our understanding of God, but rather we lived according to the systems of this world, according to culture. We did not know any better. That was our posture. That was the way that we were pointing, where our feet were pointing. But continuing in verse four, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, 
made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Through the mechanism that was provided by Jesus, when we became followers of Jesus, God himself did the work of changing our manner of life. So now, rather than mindlessly conforming to the patterns of the earthly kingdom, we can live a life that is aware, is awakened and aware of God and his workings in the world and in our own hearts. The overall posture of our life, the overall manner of life that we live is now postured toward God. Continuing in verse six, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Why did he do that? In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves it is the gift of god not by works so that no one can boast we're fond of saying that we're saved by grace why should we think that that we are saved into the kingdom of god by grace and then we continue after that under the power of our own efforts that doesn't even make sense but more than anything i want you to remember verse 10 For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Do you you see? God is the one that drives the process of transformation. God is the catalyst for this, not us, not us. The word handiwork in the Greek is is P-O-E-M-A, poema. You don't have to be a language expert to kind of puzzle out there that the word poem comes from this Greek word. We are like a poem that God is writing. Our lives are being crafted by him like a work of art, a painting, a beautiful object like a carving or a sculpture, a short story, something meticulous and intentional. We are being crafted. We are God's handiwork. Notice that Paul says we are created in order to do good works. That is the purpose of the particular handiwork that is us. Just like a poem is designed to evoke a feeling or tell a story, we are designed to show the goodness of God through the coming ages, or at least that's what we read in verse seven, wasn't it? We are designed to tell the story of who God is by allowing ourselves to be crafted in his image. And this matters very, very much to our discussion today because if we are going to be successful at getting our S together, 
We had better make sure that God is involved in the process. From start to finish, God is the one. He knows the right point in the creative process to edit a phrase or add a word. He knows the proper rhythm for the poem that is you. If he's writing a sentence, if he is in the middle of writing a sentence of your life about entering into Sabbath rest, maybe it's not the best time to start a new busy activity. If he's working on the part about giving up perfectionism, then maybe a complicated diet might compete with his purposes. And maybe, just maybe, maybe he's writing a verse about accepting yourself just exactly as you are today and resting in his love, in which case you might be hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit when you're, when you're considering maybe not making any resolutions this year. Maybe you could just stage a holy revolution against the whole thing. <laughs> I like who I am and God likes who I am. It's good. That's an option. Did you guys know that? Do you see what I'm saying? Do you see what I'm saying here? The feeling, I think, ultimately, that we need to get our ass together, I think it absolutely comes from that longing inside of us to fulfill the purpose for which we were made, which is doing good works. That's a part of it, it absolutely is. But we cannot escape the fact that those good works were designed by God. Just as we were designed by God and we can't just look around and say, here's something I don't like about myself. So I'm going to fix that through the sheer force of my own will. It doesn't work. We all know that. I and mean, we can be honest here. It's okay. We know that doesn't work. That's why so many resolutions fail. I mean, they've got like a, like a six-day shelf life or something like that. I don't know what the statistics are. They fail because we're not inviting God into the process. Some of you may know and, and others maybe not, but uh, for 20 years of my life, starting at age 13, maybe it might have been a little bit over 20 years, I'm not really good at math, but I was a smoker for 20 years, maybe a little bit more than that. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, this past summer it was seven years uh, since I quit for good. So I... Uh. But like a lot of people, like most people who try to, try to quit smoking, I tried and tried and tried and tried. I think I tried maybe, maybe a dozen times over the course of those years. Every single time I failed. I failed at it. Once, one, my longest um, stretch was, I, it was almost a year that I made it uh, while I was expecting our daughter. And so, you know, that's, that's something. But I knew that I should quit. The word should was always in my brain, always. Should, 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 should. 
I knew it was unhealthy. I knew it was expensive, especially when we lived in Illinois and they started raising the taxes and so a pack of cigarettes was like $7 or something. It was ridiculous. Ridiculous amount of money I spent on this habit. I knew it was bad. I knew that it was a substance that I was relying on and that freedom is always preferable. Freedom is always preferable, except for my coffee. Don't mess with my coffee, right? Socially acceptable addictions, right? I tried a few different methods for quitting. Of course, I tried cold turkey. This time, I'm just going to throw them away and, you know, didn't want anybody to see, you know, 14 hours later, me digging through the trash can and, you know, trying to rinse the spaghetti sauce off of the two cigarettes left in the pack and all of that stuff. Cold turkey, willpower, was not a good, not a good situation. I had a cassette tape behavior modification course that was, I forget what it was called, but it was, it was in one of those big plastic bulky cases. It was was not helpful. I did an online support group one of the times. I got lots and lots of prayer a couple of the times. I just knew, you know, this is a spiritual problem. And so if I just, on Sunday morning, I'll just get one of the really spiritual little old ladies to pray for me a couple times, and then, then we'll lick it. But ultimately, every time I was unsuccessful, I failed and I failed and I failed. And it may sound bizarre to you, when I say this now, hopefully I've, I've set up this concept decently well, but the idea that I should quit smoking at all of those points in time, that was just an assumption that I made. And I didn't really stop and ask God to be involved with my discernment process ahead of time. I didn't stop and ask him, I just assumed I decided on my own that I was going to do it and then I asked him afterward to help me. Don't, don't we do that? Come on, God, let's go. I got stuff to do. I got plans. Come on. You want to come along? But for me, smoking was a long-term habit that I had that was driven by some pretty significant underlying anxiety. I, my whole life, I have struggled with clinical-level anxiety disorder. And there were a number of years that dealing with that part of myself was my main task of growth because it absolutely interfered with my life through my own spiritual practices, through the people around me, the help of a counselor. I began to realize that the way that I was trying to ignore and over-spiritualize my condition of anxiety uh, was just making it worse. And so for a time, um, I had to take steps to learn healthy ways to cope with the reality of my physiology and my psychological uh, makeup. I went on medication for a time. I began to open up in prayer to God about how he saw me, the way I felt, how he saw me in the middle of all my pain. I let him teach me that. You, you know what? It turns out, oddly enough, God did not think I was a piece of garbage that just needed to get my ass together. Who knew? I do now. 
So that went on for several years, that, that process of healing. And then lo and behold, as I leaned into health in that area that God brought to the surface, I began to see how the behavior of smoking was connected to my physiological and psychological state of being. I learned that spiritually speaking, one of the main reasons that I had been unable to be successful for myself um, in quitting smoking is that I was not yet convinced. I did not have any experience of, and so I was not yet convinced that I could trust God to be present in a way that made a difference in those moments when I was facing that anxiety. I didn't know. I used nicotine to calm myself when I was having heightened anxiety or panic attacks. I used cigarettes as a reason to excuse myself and take a break from things that felt stressful. I still miss that sometimes, that excuse to step away. I have to, I have to be um, more assertive. I don't have that, that crutch there uh, for myself. But I didn't know if God would be willing to assist me in those situations. I really didn't. I wondered if maybe he would just tell me to suck it up and leave me on my own. But by allowing God to be the one that drove the process of growth and healing in my life, do you see the brilliance of that? He was well aware of my anxiety, and he was well aware of my distrust. So he healed those things first. And then, once the foundation was laid that I needed, it was relatively easy to say goodbye to cigarettes. Now, I still used, you know, nicotine replacement tools, you know, the lozenges and the gum and things to help me with my physical withdrawals and whatnot, and I picked a week where, you know, Vince and Chrissy were off on a youth trip or something just so no one had to be around me when I was cranky, and, you know, I still used all the practical mechanisms of support, but I haven't gone back to it in seven years because, because of this, because the final attempt was God's handiwork. It was his grace not my own effort. The tension of all of this, it's this. It's not primarily about our behavior, but our behavior will be affected. It's hard to tell the difference sometimes. That's why legalism is so attractive because it's just so cut and dried. It's so easy to just make rules for everything. Then everybody knows the way forward, but, but this, this true approach to the gospel and to sanctification, it's hard to tell the difference because it's a subtle thing. It's something that's internal. It's something that's unique. I think the recovery movement understands this way better than the church sometimes way better than the church. You know, if you, if you abstain from alcohol without dealing with your S, they call you a dry drunk. Have you guys heard that? If you're not familiar with the 12 steps, I'd encourage you to, 
take a look at them, look into that sometime because there is some really solid spiritual truth built into that process. How does change come? What are the factors that are involved? What should we change and why? As you are thinking about 2020 and the differences that you would like to see in yourself, in your life, in your practices, I'm asking you, I'm begging you all because I love you. I want you to do more than just make a list of the things that you hate about yourself. Don't do that. I'm asking you to start from a place of knowing, of really knowing that literally this is true. If you never get your S together any more than it is today, if you don't change a single thing about yourself for the rest of your life, God will not love you any less. He cannot love you any more than he does in this moment with all of your piles of whatever kind of S you are carrying around. He loves you. I'm asking you from that starting point, that starting point of knowing that you are loved and there is so much more to you than the sum of all of your struggles. From that place, I'm asking you to invite God into the process and allow him to inform your areas of growth this year. Because he is, after all, the author of the poem. He can see the beauty of the whole thing. The whole thing. He is aware of what is in need of attention in order for you to be in full alignment with the beauty of the poem.